Hospitality Meets is brought to you by Rotacloud, the people management platform for hospitality teams. With its intuitive drag-and-drop rotor planner and built-in budgeting tools, Rotacloud users spend an average of 66% less time on staffing-related admin, leaving them with more time to spend with their customers, train staff, or simply take a well-earned break. Head over to rotacloud.com forward slash fill to explore Rotacloud's full range of tools and features and sign up for your 30-day free trial. Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is part two of my chat with the epic Matt Burgess, director of Kaiwanua Limited. Coming up on today's show... Matt demonstrates a very niche set of skills. If you ever need a book written in the voice of a young teenage girl, I'm your man. Phil gets flummoxed. Well, I mean, for want of a better phrase, holy shit. And Matt reveals the most incredible outcome. And at that point, I lost my mum, but I found my dad. All that and so much more as Matt and I conclude our chat through his epic journey. I hope you'll agree Matt has been an awesome guest and I for one offer him a huge thank you for being so incredibly open. Don't forget to give us a subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Enjoy. My life, man. You you have lived a life and we've not even finished yet. Yeah. No, <laughs> no. And as I said, you know, please tell me to wind it up if it's uh, if it, if it, if it uh, goes on too long. No, I, 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 I'm hoping that the listeners are with me on this, that, you know, there's... There's monumental lessons here in your story. And please don't take this the wrong way, but it's almost, it seems from time to time, it's a case of how not to do things. Yeah. But, and, um, and that's why I enjoy telling it, you know. Yeah. Um, it, sometimes it's really hard to, to talk about, but I do find it a lot easier. And I, as we were talking about before, I find it very cathartic and very healing for myself to be able to say the story that I have. Yeah, because it 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 was terrible. It was it was really hard, but there was also some really high points in in my life as well, which I'm really blessed about. So yeah, yeah. So it, like it, at rock bottom, basically, I was working at the Globe, crack cocaine problem, and and it was a very much a personal problem because I didn't involve anybody else. I didn't do it with anybody. I I just did it by myself, and it was. It became sort of like a once a week thing. Then it got to, you know, twice a week and then three times a week. And I, I, there was one point where I had invited my friends down to the globe to watch one of the shows because they're great shows. They were fantastic. And uh, I'll never forget, we got so drunk and I was walking back. I, I was about to catch a bus actually to go home and I was walking back with one of my friends and I, I just felt at that time I needed to tell him. I needed to tell him that I had a problem. And I did. And I said, like, I, th- I, I need some help. And I don't really know how to do this. God, another crossroads moment. Yeah. And he's like, okay, cool. I'm, you know, you're my friend. And I really want to help you. And and we will. So I gave him my phone. And I'll never forget, he just smashed it up there, stood on it, took out the card, fucking broke the card. And he's like, you have got no access to drugs now. You know, he goes, I'll get in contact with Emma, who's my ex-wife, and said, like, you're going to be staying with us for a while. And my best friends pulled an intervention, you know, and they did. And they kept me at their house for a month. And, um, you know, and I got to, like, hang out with them and just live with them day by day, you know. And they they really, really helped me, which I'm really thankful for. 
because it was a it was a time where I was at my lowest and I was so depressed and so not knowing what to do and how to get back out there. And I never forget my friend telling me, he's like, mate, you know, you worked at one of the best restaurants in the UK. You know, you, you, this incredible musician, you're an incredible chef. You, you've got all this going for you. You know, how do you get back there? Mm. What are the steps for you to get back there? And at the time I, I was, I was so scared. I knew what I had to do. And that was work for somebody big work for somebody like who is just going to be, but I was terrified. I was terrified to make that step in case that I'd let that person down and let myself down and let anything down. Yeah. And then um, I was having a look at, at, at jobs and there was a, there was a job at, at the Bluebird in, in Chelsea. And at the time it was Mark Broadbent who was the winner. He had just, just won great British menu, the first great British menu. And so obviously everybody knew who, Mark Broadbent was and and I was like okay so I got in contact with Mark and I was like look you know looking for a job wanna wanna you know come come work for you you know you're one of the best best chefs in the country and he's like yep cool you come work with me and you know we'll do it and I went to go work at this place and uh it was D&D London walked into the Bluebird it's a massive restaurant and I, I I was terrified you know I went in as a sous chef so uh, what what it was is that I was being trained to be the sous chef for the restaurant upstairs. Now, when I went there, I found that that environment in there wasn't conducive for me at the time. And I felt like I couldn't personally and mentally deal with the stress with, with and, and be capable for all the chefs who were around me. So I sat down with Mark and I said, look, to be honest, mate, I don't think this is right for me. This is definitely not the the type of environment that I that I should be doing yeah. at the at the time. I'm just going to continue on looking for for more work. And Mark was like, "Look, I've got another position available for you, but I don't know if you want it." It's a head chef of the cafe, which is downstairs. So you've got the cafe, you've got the courtyard, and the epicery, uh, which is the delicatessen on the side. He's like, you know, do, do you want to have a look at doing that? So I was like, okay, cool. Let me do a day down there. And I really liked it. I liked the team down there. It was small. It was intimate. It was really cool. It was still part of Bluebird and it was still part of doing what Mark Broadbent does. So I could still like work alongside him. And then by no ways was it any more quieter. We ended up doing like a thousand covers a day. But it was amazing. You know, it was amazing. And it was that trajectory that really helped me get back on track. And I never forget going back in there, going, the biggest thing that I want to do, and again, this harkens back to my childhood, is I want to be the best. I want to be better than everybody else. And how can I do that? To not have any days off and do doubles every day. And I did. And I and I was like, well, I've pushed myself, I've pushed my body through alcohol and drugs and all this shit. Like, why don't you push yourself working? You know, so yeah. I did, and 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 I I I'll never forget. I did like a I think it was like a seventy day run of doubles every day, just absolutely going for it. Lived and breathed it, just nonstop. And I'll never forget one Saturday, Mark came in and he's like, "I'm forcing you to take a day off," and I was like, "No, nah, I don't want to." And he's like, "Give me your phone, go home." He's like, "I don't know what you're trying to prove. We love you. You can do the job. You're amazing. Yeah. You don't need to prove to anybody." how good you are. Like, I'm just happy to have you, but I can't have you burn out. I can't have you. And I was like, I won't burn out. 
I'll never burn out, you know. And, you know, I never did. And I worked there for three years. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And it was uh, one of the greatest experiences. But then after that, I was even more hungry. And I was like, okay, what's the, what's the next biggest thing that I can do? And then that was uh, maize. So, so yeah, maize. I mean, do I remember when this hit the scene? Like it was the it was the shiny new thing again in town when when it first first came in. So at what point did you come in? Were you part of pre-opening or were you was it up and running at that point? I think it had been going for about two years at the time. Right when when I joined, it was the best restaurant in London at the time. I was, this was um, under and, Jason at the time, was it? Yeah, this was, this was yeah. under Jason. It was probably, I left, and I would say probably about a year, no, six months after Jason left to do Pollen Street. Right. So it was your fault. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely <laughs> my fault. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so like, yeah, it's, I wanted to work for the best, and I was like, well, you know, if if you're going to do it, at the time I was probably about 32 to 33 years old, I was like, if you're going to do it, you need to do it now, okay? Because this is your life. This is your time to do it. I'd worked hard. I understand. I understood good food. I was a competent chef. Well, at least I thought when I went to Mays. Yeah. And then, then I saw a level which I'd never experienced in my life and I was like if this is one star like I have no idea what three star is and um it was incredible so you know I I started in the grill so I didn't start on the side of May's restaurant however you you flipped in between the restaurants as and when that you could but my main sort of home was May's Grill which is the steak restaurant yeah. which at the time against Goodman, who I work with now, was Goodman was number one steak restaurant in the UK, number two was Maze. And so we, we were really proud of that. So I think Maze Grill was very much a, I wouldn't even say affordable either because it was really expensive, but it was at a level where people could come in and still experience Gordon Ramsay. And I think at that time, that's what a lot of people wanted to because they couldn't afford to go to Mays, then they'll come to Mays Grills. We were right. busy. Like we were absolutely slammed. And going to work there was the best way that I could explain it for me was levels of tiredness. And I'd never experienced this in my life because I was like, look, I've done 70 doubles in a row. I've I've done this. And it was like, no, 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 no. You haven't experienced levels of tiredness like this. Is that because that was, of the the kind of the focus on pre precision is constantly and just excellence is just there every single moment of every single day? It was extreme excellence. It was an honour to work and watch these guys. I remember the saw chef coming in at like 5.30 every morning to start reducing the stocks. He, they, made the, they made the juice fresh every single day. Right. Every single day they made it. And I'm like, why don't you just make a ton of it and put it in the freezer? You know, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, you know, and there was like, mm, that's not what we do here. And just the level of food that they were doing and the intricacies, and especially Jason is known for his puddings and desserts, and they were, they were just out of this world, like incredible, incredible stuff. So, you know, you had to, you had to start at seven in the morning and you finished 
whenever you'd finish. Generally, you'd be out of there by hopefully at 12, but sometimes it was 12.30, sometimes it was one after cleaning. And then you'd have to be back there at seven in the morning. It was really hard. Yeah. Really, really, really hard. Well, thankfully, that, that kind of focus is changing now, isn't it? The Because um, like, that's, yeah. that's not sustainable. It, it was, at the end, it was a really stupid move for me. It, actually, sorry, I'm not going to say stupid. At the time, I was not, and, and I've got to really say thank you to my ex-wife and my friends around me at the time because they helped support me in everything. I mean, helping me pay my rent because I was on like the lowest wage for a sushi in Mays. You know, it was really tough. And for me, with a newborn child, okay, Etienne at the time was five years old, um, I never saw him. There's no way I could see the guy. Like, I, you know, you, you'd be doing these monster shifts there. I had, I had watched people walk into that kitchen, you know, take one look at it and just walk out because they just can't. They can't do it. There was there was a core group of us that, you know, that that stayed there. And even though that my tenure wasn't that long, it, you know, it, I I still take my hat off. Like there's still guys now that are still with Jason that I know, and who I still keep in contact with that are still like working just as hard for him. And you know, mm. that's that's what it takes. Like I I will no way say that you know Jason is is a bad person or anything like this because I think what he does is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And still one of I would say if you've got uh chefs who you favorite, you know, he's still one one of my favorite chefs. He's so innovative. He's so amazing at delivering it. And you know, if anybody I watched during lockdown was him and his his videos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you know, he's he's had 20 years at the top. Now, yeah, you know, I th- you can't do that without being brilliant, you know. And uh, he's not done it by luck. Uh, there's a lot of graft, and he's asked a lot of people to graft along the way. But his offer is still as relevant today as it was 20 years ago, yep. and that means yep. that he's also evolved with what's going on in the world. Yeah, and and also the people that he's taken around him, he's also elevated them to have all their own restaurants as well. Yeah, you know, I, I I was working with the likes of Paul Hood and Alex, who gave him his own restaurant at Clerkenwell. Paul Hood has actually got a restaurant as well. You know, I was I was working with all those guys when you know we when I was with Jason, and you know he's he's very loyal to the team and the people that he have, has around him, and you know his restaurants are a testament to his hard work. And I'm I'm honoured, even though that I didn't directly work at Mays, I still worked at Mays Grill and still part of that. And you know it was. Uh, you know, there, at the time when when I did leave, you know, I he did sit me down. It's like, are you sure? And I was like, this is where I'm at. You know, I'm I I have no money. I I'm I'm not a rich person. I've got a five year old child who I'm really really trying to give the best life that I can. And unfortunately, I can't do it on these wages. Where mm. I can go to another place and work at an okay place and get triple the amount that you're paying me. You know, so if 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 that worked out, and you know, he he begrudgingly said no, and you know, we can't do that. And I was like, look, I totally understand. I've got to I've got to go. So in no way was it like animosity or out of anger or walking out or anything. You know, we both broke ties um, amicably, but mm. you know, it was more. I had to do a little bit of money chasing at the time because you know I had a five year old son that was dependent on me. Yeah, needs must. And yeah, yeah, and that's what it was. So, 
After that, I started working at Valandry, which was on Great Portland Street. It was one of sort of the big uh, uh, the big restaurants that uh, when I took that over as head chef, it was an incredible operation. They had their own bakery with 15 bakers in it. You know, I'm going to throw around these numbers. They had 70 chefs in total in this operation. It was incredible. They were doing hampers for Wimbledon. They were doing hampers for Ascot races. They just, it was a giant operation of, of things that they had to do there. And that's where I really sort of honed my skills as a chef to understand what is um, good cooking um, yeah. and, and people basically. Um, which was one of, again, I'll get onto this, but one of the greatest things that I, I've sort of ever in, grasped from being a chef. And one things that I learned that it's never about the food. It's always got to be about the people. And I didn't grasp that early enough. Right. And And now that I have, it's a really beautiful thing because you'd have nothing if you don't have people. And... It was always about the product and it was always about the food for me. And it was always about this. But if you don't have the people, you don't have the food. Yeah, so. you can't produce the product that you want. Yeah. So th- th- this, this is, is, I think this is a key learning for leadership, really, isn't it? In any form. And it, it I'm just really grateful that we live in a, a time whereby this is being realized more and more every day. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the industry now is really focused on the human that's part of their business. I think we have to. I, that's the thing. I, I, I really think that we have to. And there was some real change that had to happen over the past few years, especially during COVID. And, you know, the, the wonderful idea of Brexit destroying like 30% of our workforce. You know, we've, we've had to be creative and we've had to really look at ourselves and, and see what we can do. And, We've had to start again, basically. We've had to go, okay, here's our doors open again. Right, here's a load of young people. Right, we need to start from the beginning and train all of you people mm. to be the next hospitality legends, you know? Yeah. Um. So working at Valangia, I worked there for three years. Great. Learned how to do sort of high volume, understanding people, understanding British cuisine. I think in the background always there's been a, a real part of cooking that I've missed was New Zealand style cookery. Now we we don't have a cuisine in New Zealand. One of my friends fondly calls it magpieing. So we magpie <laughs> take things back to the nest and we mix it up together and we do that. So right. a lot of I- ideas that I had were really outside the box. And a lot of people were going, oh, uh, let's 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 put that one in the box and let's try something a bit more simple that people that will understand. And I get it. I totally get it. Because a lot of the ideas at the time were crazy. They were they were mad. Like, what do you mean putting chili and fish together? What are, what are you talking about? What do you mean putting like parmesan on a fish risotto? What are you what are you talking about? This is crazy, <laughs> you know. And I loved Valandry. I I loved working there. And what happened that Jamie Barber sold it, and at the time that he sold it, the company that had taken over were really lovely. They said we'd love you to stay on. The focus and the way that they were about to take the company was not something that I wanted to lead, basically. So I I said, look, I'm going to leave. And we left again, totally amicably. And, and, and it was great. Um, 
they actually got me a global knife, which I still have to this day. Right. Um, a really, really lovely one. That's if Global are listening, I'd love a sponsorship. Yeah, yeah, and me, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, definitely <laughs> you do, Phil. Um, so after Valandry, there was Jamie's Italian. Now, a lot of people had said to me about, oh, you know, it's a branded restaurant. What are you doing? You know, you've always been independent. You've worked at all these amazing places. Jamie Oliver's over the hill. Jamie Oliver's done this. You know, why are you going to go work for this guy? You know, Da, da, da. He had everything on a plate, whatever, blah, 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 blah. The usual stuff from my generation of chefs that were basically jealous of Jamie Oliver, which I totally understand. So the the restaurant that was offered to me was a, a restaurant in Threadneedle Street that they were building. It was a, a week restaurant, so it was right in the middle of the city. So it was a Monday to Friday restaurant. And yeah, so I, I trialed for it and got the job and I was really happy and... Um, I, I started to start to work for the company and then they put me in Cardiff to train and I started training in Cardiff. And, and, and from there, I started to understand um, what Jamie was about and what the company was about. Sort of rolling back quite a few years, just quickly, my perception of Jamie Oliver up until my son was probably about six or seven, about that was pretty poor, like most chefs who were quite jealous of Jamie of getting this big rise to power and everything like that. But actually, one of the schools that he did school dinners in was my son's school in Basingstoke, okay. right. which was which was incredible. So I was always a huge advocate for my son for eating healthy food. And I've always been about that. When he came to stay with me, we, we ate very balanced meals. I always made sure that he never ate any crap and that he was always really well nourished now when jamie came to school and was fighting that fighting the government to say we need better meals you need to spend more money on school meals it really rung a chord with me so after that he was a bit of a hero in my books yeah. especially at my son's school i don't think uh anybody with a heart can look at jamie and and what he's done i mean it you know you can i suppose question his his rise to to power that's fine but Ultimately, what he's done with it is something really, really positive, and that's yeah. uh, you know I, that's what I would hope he'd be remembered for is, is that he's always fought for stuff that you know is important. I think. Yeah, I think having a voice that he does and what he does, and knowing him personally, and actually counting him as one of my friends, he's a great guy. Yeah. And what what you see on TV is like what he's like personally. Although he does swear a lot, which is hilarious seen it come out of his mouth you're like wow it's well, really he's, weird watching he's an Essex boy I um <laughs> I know, he right? actually li- uh, grew up about five miles away from where I now live so so you live around um it would be Saffron Walden Rivlington yeah 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 yeah, yeah so, so my st- wife Stansted Mount Fitchett is where I am wow yeah my uh wife lived in Saffron Walden she grew up there right. all her life yes so she, nice part she of knows the world. Yeah, it's gorgeous, mate. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, well, her family's moved to around us now in South Woodford. Anyway, so I did my training there and we opened up Threadneedle Street. Now, the great thing about Threadneedle Street is that they wanted it not to be a normal James Italian. So I got to sign the menu with the executive chef at the time, a guy called uh, Davide. Yeah, and it was fantastic. We we I, I was there for probably about three and a half years and it was 
amazing absolutely amazing i loved my time with jamie it felt like i was very much on a stage all the time i have a, a lot of friends that live in europe and every time i went to for example sweden i everybody would go oh this is my friend matt he works for jamie oliver oh this is my friend matt. and it was very much like feeling the celebrity yeah. lifestyle, even though I'm in no way a celebrity at all. It was... Uh, I don't know, you've got, yeah, a, a, got a pretty pronounced following on Instagram. Yeah, do you know what? And I, I'm going to get on to how I got all those followers. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, a, again, another crazy story. But, you know, go, going through my time with Jamie and working with him, I really then started to understand people and I found out about real people development through the worst way and I had I lost a lot of chefs over the period of about three weeks so and I'll never forget and he would hate me that I call him this but I will say this I would call him a mentor but he never was but the advice that he gave me was even better in my personal life than it was at, at work and it was our operations director at the time a guy could Jacques Desjardins, who now lives in Asia and opened up restaurants out there. Incredible, incredible manager. I remember I lost all these chefs and uh, he, I sat down and he's like, what do you think? What do you think is the reason? And I was like, oh, they're all leaving for personal reasons and da, 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 da. And he just looked at me and he goes, do you think it's because of you? And I, that, him saying that to me, I went away quite offended. And I went away looking at him going, I can't believe he's, he thinks that I'm the problem. I'm a lovely guy. I'm a really good guy. I've been through hell and high water. I've been through all of this. Like, mm. I'm in no way um, a bad person. And I'm not a bad person. I was just a bad manager. Right. You know? And I wasn't listening when it was time to listen. And I wasn't understanding that a team needs nurturing and guidance it needs love it needs to know when to push and when not to push and i learned so much from those simple words of do you think you're the problem mm -hmm. and i went away and i looked at myself and i looked at the way that i managed and i'll never forget which was really really incredible time as i went up to a guy that i was quite close with in the kitchen another new zealander at the time and I asked him, is a big seven-foot Maori guy called Dave. And I said to Dave, Dave, do you think I'm the problem why all these chefs left? And he's like, yeah, you yelled at this guy once, you did that there, and you did that one there. If you didn't do that, those guys wouldn't have left. And I thought about it, and I was like, wow. And I was like, why didn't you ever say that? Because you never asked. And right. I was like, okay. I was like, yeah, you're, you're right. And I was like, could you make sure that if I'm being a dick, you'll tell me? And he goes, from now on, every time. And he did. And it'd be like, sometimes I'll be at the pass and he'll be like, calm down. And I'll be like, wicked, cool. Sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry. And everyone was cool. And then I realized, like, it's not always going to be about the head chef. And you're put onto this pedestal as a head chef. I then stood off the pedestal, went behind the line, started cooking with the chefs and seeing their day-to-day -day issues and put the chefs around the front and have them manage me. And then I understood it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, yeah. It, and it, that to me was a really powerful moment in my life where 
I I understood. And then, you know, I was lucky enough that the Jamie Oliver guys, they put me on a Chartered Managers Institute course and I got to learn about managing people and leading people and, and, and understanding challenging conversations and coaching and mentoring and, and sort of things like this. And I became quite good at it. And then from that point on, I got offered to go uh, speak with the Jamie Oliver 15 guys. So I did that uh, three years in a row, telling the same story that I'm telling you now, because most of them are from disadvantaged backgrounds. So yeah. they have a lot of affinity with what I've been through or, you know, and th- they've been able to come to me and talk to me and I've been able to go to them and talk to them about what I've been through as well. And, you know, uh, we have a lot of similarities uh, with us. So I was really honoured to be involved so heavily with the Jamie Oliver Foundation and actually quite gutted that they had to stop it. But it was never a money-making thing and they were bleeding a lot of money out of it right. all the time. And I know I know that Jamie misses it a lot as well, you know, because it was a great foundation and the people that work there were fantastic. And I hope in one day somebody will start it up and, and, and read it. Could be me. Don't know, but you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's always a part of of that that I absolutely loved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, post Jamie, what what happened next? So post Jamie, I I left Jamie's, and again, I think that I was bigger than I actually was at the time, and I went to go work for a pub group called ETM. Oh yeah, um, I, I and then um, yeah, they're great. We yeah. I opened Ealing Park Tavern. Loved working there. Loved working with those guys. We opened that place. It was all absolutely fantastic. And then from that point, I I, it, I had an old friend of mine. Now let's harken back to all the years where my mum won the money, and I was working at a place called Mondo Cucina. I Blair Street had maybe five or six restaurants on it. Now, within all these restaurants, all the chefs in front of house used to meet up in each other's restaurants after service and have some drinks. Now, during this time, I had met a guy called Miles Kirby. Uh, He was a kitchen porter at a place called City Bistro, uh, which was, at the time, the best restaurant in New Zealand. And I was working at Mondo Cucina. So, fast forward to post-ETM, I had Miles Kirby slide into my DMs and said, Matt, I've been watching your career on Facebook, you know, and I love the way that you have changed your perception of people and how you, like, love teams and people. And, you know, you bring all these really good vibes and energy on your Facebook and Instagram, da 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 are just really cool. And it's like, if you were ever looking for any work, I'm planning to open up a restaurant in Bankside. I would love you to get involved. At the time, I wasn't really looking. I hadn't spoken to Marlon. Like I'd seen him at an event in New Zealand House probably about 13 years, 14 years earlier. Spoke to him for about five minutes, but I hadn't seen him in years. And um, I was like, okay, cool. Let's meet up and let's have a chat. I just want to see what you've been up to. Mm. So um, we met up at Vinoteca in King's Cross. His restaurant is Caravan, uh, which is just up the road. And we sat down and we just spoke about like what he's been up to and what he's looking for. Then I spoke about what I've been up to, what I'm looking for. And then we proceeded to just hang out like two mates for about seven hours drinking um, for the rest of the day. And that was just really cool. And I walked away from that conversation and that interaction that I had with him 
and said, man, I need to, I need to hang out with him more often. You know, I was like, look, I don't, I don't know if I really want to go and work at Caravan. I, I'm not sure if it's the right step for me to go and work for something like this, but it's got a very good name. It's got an amazing reputation and Miles is a legend. A very quick word, if you'll permit me. Providing great customer service is all about having the right people in the right place at the right time. And that's exactly where our sponsor, Rotocloud, can help. Rotocloud makes managing your team's rotas, attendance and annual leave easy. With its simple drag and drop planner, you'll be creating rotas for your team in minutes. While its built-in budgeting tools mean you'll know exactly how much you're spending on staffing before sending the rota out. One Rotocloud customer actually reported that they'd gone from spending 25% on their monthly turnover on wages to spending just 19%, all thanks to Rotocloud's intuitive rota planning software. So do your business a favour and head over to rotacloud.com forward slash fill to start your 30-day free trial and find out how much easier organising your team can be. Now let's get back to it. So uh, I went home. At the time, I just met my current wife, who I have now, and, and had a chat to her. And she was like, um, why don't you just go work a day and see what you think? So I did. And, and, and then, you know, the, the rest is history. Nearly eight years later, Um, you know, we've, we've taken caravan from two restaurants to seven. They're about to open their eighth very soon. Um, Which is great to hear actually in the face of everything that's going on in the world. It's great to hear that expansion plans are still there, despite the fact that the cost of everything is going up. I think caravan for me, and I'm very honored to have been part of the team, have really led the way in people. When I arrived at Caravan, my my number one thing was like, I don't want to work for any companies that don't have people at their core value. I don't want to work for that's That's what I decided. I didn't care about the food. I didn't care about anything. People had to be number one about the core value. And it was. Yeah. And still is to this day. You know, it's a, it's a great company to work for. When I walked through those doors, it was like walking through a restaurant doors back in Wellington. The, the culture, the people... Uh, they had employed a lot of New Zealanders there. The style of food, everything, I just got it. I just understood. The moment I walked in, I understood the culture. I understood the people. I understood the food. People would be, the chefs would be saying to me, like, I don't understand these combinations. And I was like, really? I do. But, like, it was all those weird combinations that I was talking about before mm. all seemed really easily understandable to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, you just put those ones together and, put these ones together and then we do that so so it started and then you know soon after starting I was originally employed to be the head chef of Caravan Bankside and then soon after that they promoted me to the group chef of both of the restaurants King's Cross and Exmouth Market yeah and said you know uh, help us find a head chef for um for Caravan Bankside and uh, during this point they had decided to write a cookbook so they wanted to get me involved because I'd Work with Jamie and I'd done some work with him doing cookbooks and stuff like that as well. It was super interesting. So we all wrote the cookbook together, myself and Laura and Chris and Miles, and spent like weeks at his house designing all the food that we wanted to do and how to do it. And um, from that point, I really got to understand the culture, the food, what they were trying to achieve at Caravan. And it's something that's really familiar to me. Because it's my culture, it's my home, it's where where I'm from. Yeah. So so from that point, it was go go go. You know, we 
we took the took the uh, brand from two restaurants to uh, seven, as I as I mentioned, and we we're about to open the eighth, and then COVID hit, which was which was hard. I had never in my life had longer than two weeks off, three weeks probably. It's the longest I'd ever have off in my career. Mm. So you know, getting nearly six months off was just just mad. So during this time. I didn't know what to do, but I, it was a really weird time for me because I was like, I've been gifted this time. What am I going to do with it? So I wanted to write books. I've always been interested in writing books, but I haven't been very eloquent in the way that I write. So I wanted to learn how to write, write like write books and, 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 and write uh, paragraphs and things like this. So quite strangely, I, I found a course online that was quite cheap. It was 11 quid. And it was two Irish ladies that were quite famous for writing teenage novels. But they were teaching you the fundamental basics of having to do this. So I did this 11-week course during, during lockdown. And I was like, cool, and then started to write and realized that I was writing like a teenage writer. So... <laughs> Um, if you ever need a book written in the voice of a young teenage girl, I'm your man. You're, okay, got it. Um, <laughs> during during this time, this is also through other parts of my career. While I was working at Jamie's, I met a, uh, a fantastic individual called Christian Stevenson. Now, Jamie was doing his 15-minute meal book launch um, at Threadneedle Street, and Christian Stevenson is the DJ. Now, I was preparing all the food, and Christian was coming over, and he's an American guy, but born in the UK, but grew up in uh, Maryland, and he goes by the pseudonym DJ Barbecue. Now, at the time, he had just started this business called DJ Barbecue, and he had bought a couple of smokers from Texas, big Lang smokers, huge ones that look like steam trains, got them shipped over to the UK and wanted to start this catering business. Now, when he saw what I could do, he's like, hey, I could really do with some advice on, on doing mass catering. And I was like, oh, fantastic. So you must be a chef. You must know. It's like, absolutely not. I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm like, wow, okay. Well, I'm happy to give you advice, but unfortunately I work with Jamie Oliver. So, you know, you're kind of going to have to ask him. Now, at this event, Jamie fell in love with Christian and he had been working on a channel called Food Tube. So at the time, he had curated about seven people to do this network with him, if you mm. remember it. And he uh, had a lady called Jemima do cupcakes. He had the food busker. Uh, he had Christian Stevenson, which was DJ Barbecue, and a couple of other people that were working on where he would take his production company, film these people, come up with this content, and start to post it on YouTube to help raise these people's profiles. Now, during this time, Christian asked him if Matt could come and help me out at the festival. So I did. So we started working together for three, three or four years throughout my, so during the weekends, I would go and work with Christian. Most of the time, take my son. He absolutely loved it. He was a young sort of teenager at the time. So he was really enjoying it. And, you know, we had some really great times. And that's where, during that time is where I started to meet all these incredible people through Christian. You know, I got to meet all the chefs, Nathan Outlaw, um, Monica Galetti, all these people who would come to these festivals and come want to taste our barbecue. You know, there was yeah. a, at one one point Norman Cook uh, from Fat Boy Slim 
uh, Fame is a huge fan of barbecue. So he used to come and hang out with us at the festivals and, you know, we'll show him how to use these smokers and sort of things like that. So my life from that point started going in a sort of a different direction anyway. Harkening back to lockdown, one year previous to lockdown, I was at a festival called Black Deer Festival, and I was doing a chef demonstration, and I ended up talking to a guy that fabricates large smokers. Now, I had a dream. This is the weirdest thing. I had a dream. So the traditional way of cooking in New Zealand for the Māori is a form of cookery called the hangi. Now, with a hangi, you build a huge fire pit. You put in volcanic river stones in the bottom. You heat up the river stones on the fire, then you put these into a hole, put food on top and bury it. And you bury it in the steam and and the heat of the stones cooks all the food through slow cooking. Then after it, you take it off, you'll say some prayers, you'll give it all to the family and then you'll give it out and it's a really delicious thing. So mm. I had a dream to create a barbecue in the, in the same idea of the honey. So you've got a fire pit at the bottom, You've got a baffle plate where you could hold the volcanic river stones and then you've got trays where you could lay out all the vegetables and meat on it. So I spoke to this guy drunk, of course. At Obviously, this festival. Plus, all the best ideas and, happen. And, and we were writing down this idea and stuff like this. Anyway, first week into lockdown, I get up at my door, open the door. He's there with a nine-foot smoker saying, I made it. I'm like, what? So it was just crazy i was like what are you doing because i'm gifting you this as a uh, as a wedding present actually that year like literally two weeks before we got locked down i just arrived back from my honeymoon from being married in 2020 right one thing piece of advice to all your wonderful listeners i never would recommend that getting married to somebody then locking them in the same house for three months together just straight uh, that's after. That's a true. That's a true test of how much you love this person. Okay? Yes, but but you're still it, together now. We are indeed very, good, very right? happily, <laughs> very very happily married. And so they gave me the smoker. So then from here, this is where all the followers came from. So I started posting about the smoker and started posting like I'm testing this out. This is what I'm going to do in my back garden. And I started like smoking, testing it out, trying to do different types of hanging, and then. All these suppliers that were following me started sending me like ridiculous amount, like half a goat, 10 kilo crabs, like oysters, razor clams, just like, oh. put that one in there, put that one in there. And so I started filming it. And and these were going huge, man, like getting millions of views on TikTok and sort of, sort of things like this. And it was just absolute insanity. Now, after all this, like my, me and my wife, we were, we're eating the food, but most of it, I was like, we're, we're left with all these leftovers. So I had a friend that lived on the same street as me that I would walk down to his house, leave it outside his house in a little takeaway thing, walk away, step away, give it to him. But then it just became too much. I had too much leftovers. So he suggested, he's like, why don't you sell it? You know, why don't you try and sell it? So I was like, okay, yeah, we'll see what goes. So we're involved in the street group. So I posted it in the street and I said, hey, like, this is what I'm doing, guys. Um, you know, if anyone's interested. And then they were like, okay, and then like hundreds of people in this group were just like going, man, this is amazing. This is this is fantastic. We want to buy this. We want to buy this. And so the first week I sold eight. Next week I sold 20. And then I was like, oh my God, this is getting a bit insane. I think I'll have to start a separate WhatsApp group because I can't manage this. Mm. And this is too much noise going into that street group. 
So then sort of I put into the street group, I said, hey, guys, just so you know, like I'm going to be doing this food to purchase. So I'll do the drop every Monday morning. I'll tell you how many portions I've got and then we'll do it. So if you could just let other people know about it. So if you could imagine that the amount of people living on the street was about 200. They were all at local school. So they shared it into all their school groups, all their their, friends groups, all the males groups, all the football groups, all the everything. And all of a sudden, I had 250 people join this WhatsApp thing. So I then had to start another one, another 250 people join. And I had like people like Noel Fielding, Nikki Shields. I had like all these celebrities that live in West London starting to order for me. And we got up to about 250 meals a week. And then I had to take a commercial space and we got up to 400 meals a week. And then it just went insane, absolutely insane. So I'm like back into it. Like I had to employ a small team. Right. My wife was doing my wife was doing the driving with a couple of other people and she was doing all the deliveries and stuff and we're doing everything all over, mainly in West London. We didn't want to sort of take it away um, much further. But yeah, it was... Absolutely, the, the accidental entrepreneur. Eh? <laughs> it just—it it was one of those things that got picked up by a couple of newspapers, and you know, did a couple of interviews, and it was just—it was just madness, absolutely madness at the time. Yeah. And then you know, Caravan got restarted. You know, during this time, I do have to mention that Caravan made sure that every single one of its staff was sorted. You know, and that's the one of the things that I absolutely love and adore about Caravan is again people have always been at their main heart so to be honest i didn't need to do this business because caravan was still paying and they were still looking after all of its staff so any money sort of made it felt wrong you know um so i started like gifting gifting things and so i i was asking people to give me numbers of nurses or to give me like house numbers of nurses or if they're wanting it to give to people and i never forget at one time we i went to go deliver this this meal package to a uh, uh to a, a nurse and she just burst into tears and i remember we both standing on the doorstep just crying her eyes out and she's like i just can't believe it like she goes i just like been working so hard during this time and just like somebody's recognized that she's like what are you doing and then weirdly we got nominated for lockdown heroes and um you know we won so we got to go to a pub in the park with tom carriage and he had offered um, like five lockdown heroes or anybody that were doing this. And we were sitting there with like doctors and nurses. And I was like, this is, this is just utter madness. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but then, yeah, Caravan started to get re- back and restarted up. And, you know, li- life started getting back to normal again. And, you know, things were sort of looking okay and looking up. And uh, then it was probably 2021. I got the I got the message which everyone fucking dreads, and it was a message from my mother's hairdresser that she was in hospital and that the hospital were trying to get in contact with me. Now, just as a reminder, what I have to say right now is that New Zealand was locked down, uh, meaning that no one was allowed out, no one's allowed in. So I managed to finally get through to my mother and find out that she had quite a major stroke. And that, um, yeah, she was she wasn't in a good way. She obviously, I don't have any brothers or sisters. She's by herself. Mm. Uh, she was alone in 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 the ward, and um, you know we had had a couple of FaceTime things. Had some friends go over and 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 go and speak to her. Some old friends from New Zealand, but 
you know, fundamentally she didn't have any uh, family around her. And so after speaking with the doctors, they had done multiple tests on her to make sure that the stroke was stable and stuff. And they found uh, that she had multiple tumours. She had a tumour in her lungs, she had two in her spine, and she had cervical cancer as well. Um, so it was, it, it, it was, you know, terminal, and it was just a matter of time. So clock was ticking. So then I proceeded to have an 11-day battle with the New Zealand government to try and get in. Um, they were very much like, you can't, I tried a couple of times, and then brilliantly the head of neurology in New Zealand, who was also looking after my mother, wrote to the Prime Minister and said, you need to let this guy in, his mum's about to die. You know, um, this is, you know, this is, she's got no one around her or anything like this. So thankfully I managed to get back to New Zealand, but I had to quarantine, which was, I don't recommend for anybody. It was mm. like being in a prison. Yeah. It was, it was awful. And then when I got back, I finally got to see mum. She could barely talk because she was paralyzed on one side of her body, but we managed to have some small talk. She was really happy that I was back. She knew what was about to happen to her. You know, and I was sort of saying to her, like, you know, let's just not worry about anything. Let's enjoy the time that we have together. And we did. My mum's favourite food is McDonald's. So I made sure that she ate McDonald's every day, <laughs> um, which was really cool. And there, there was sort of a, a, a really big thing about trying to get her into a hospice because she's in hospital. We didn't want her to pass away. And after, again, a, a huge battle because there were no beds available anywhere. For, for anybody. There was a bed available. She lives in Miramar and it's uh, a hospice there and it's one of the most popular hospices, also one of the most expensive, but there was a free bed that came up at, at a last minute's notice. I presume somebody else had passed away. So I was absolutely stoked. I was like, my God, this is amazing. Anyway, during this time, during this time, I had to pack up her house. Uh, my family had lived in the house for 82 years. So my grandfather and my mother and me had lived in the house. It's a state home, so I had to give it back to the state, which is like a council home, basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. in the UK. So, you know, I was, as you do in this situation, you've got to sort of have a pile of valuables, a pile of stuff that's going to go to other family members and stuff maybe you'll sell, maybe you'll give away, maybe you'll just give to charity. So I'm going through all these piles of things and I, I sorted out everything. My mum didn't have anything of value. Obviously, as previous, to let you know that she was quite poor. She had never got anything. The money from the lotto had run out years ago. And it was just a lot of old sort of letters that were saved from my family back in the Second World War, which I found quite interesting. It was grandmother's letters, grandfather's letters, sort of things like this. Anyway, I started packing down the kitchen and in New Zealand, we've got these old school sort of kitchens, which were all fitted and built. And on either side of there, they usually had two drawers in the middle and then what we call two flour bins. So one was for flour, one was for sugar. So I emptied the sugar bin out and put that all into the bin, threw away everything, opened the flour bin. I put that into the bin, threw everything out and I just noticed there was just a small corner of a letter. And I just randomly, I don't know why I did it. I picked up the letter, pulled it out, opened it, and I saw a picture of a guy with a letter. And the letter was to say, hey, it was really cool to hang out with you. It was a letter to my mum. Um, when I get back from Australia, I'd love to hang out with you. 
And I looked at the picture and I was like, my God, that's my, that's my fucking dad. I was like, this is just fucking insane. Like I've never seen him. I've never seen a picture of him. Didn't even know his name. Didn't yeah. know anything. And that was, that was mad. And I couldn't really talk to mum about it. Like she, she was dying basically. So, you know, it's not something that I wanted, but I'd never seen this in nearly 50 years of my life. I had none of this, n no understanding of, of who he was and what he was. Anyway, the day before mum had passed away, she wasn't in a good way. I didn't know she was going to die that day, but she wasn't in a good place. And um, she was starting to deteriorate. And I remember the matron of the place, the head nurse, came to me and she's like, why don't, why don't you get some food? Let me feed you. Let me give you a cup of tea. You know, this is not going to be pretty type thing. Like trying to sort of like, why don't you go home and get some rest and maybe come back later and, you know, all this type of stuff. So anyway, I was, starting, I was sitting in the cafe and I was just scrolling as you do through your phone mindlessly. And I thought, oh, there must be some type of Facebook group that you could like maybe post photos or post pictures. I wanted to get any information that anybody had about my father, whether he's alive, do I have any brothers or sisters, do I have anything? So I posted into this group and I sort of explained my situation to everybody in the group and just left it, closed the phone, was like, okay, cool, I'll chase it up in the next few days or give me something to keep my mind off what's happening right now. Little did I know in the background what everyone was doing was sharing and posting and talking about it and messaging me on on Facebook and saying da 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 da, da and all this stuff. And um, a little bit later on that day, it was probably about six o'clock in the evening, I had a message from somebody to say, hey, um, I think my grandfather is your dad. And I was like, what? And it's like, yeah, he's, he's still alive. I'm going to go see him now. Do you want to talk to him? And I was like, okay, cool. And we spoke about some things that were in the letter about he's got a birthmark. And I didn't say that to anybody. It's like, he's got a birthmark on his left-hand side. He was traveling with his best friend, which is what, which is my uncle. I was like, oh my God, like this is, this person is real. This is insane. And he's like, okay, cool. I'll give you a call in 20 minutes. So I absolutely freaking out, call my wife. And I was like, put her on like uh, FaceTime. And I was like, please, I need you to do this with me. And she's like, okay, you ready for this? And I was like, oh, this is going to be so freaky. My phone goes, pick up the phone. I was like, hello. And they said, hi, this is the hospice. Your mum's just passed away. And at that point, I lost my mum, but I found my dad. God. And happily, I have six brothers and sisters. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. Yeah. Jeez, Louise, man. I mean, that's the, the timing of all of this as well. It's like, uh, yeah how that all kind of it's almost as one chapter closes another chapter opens type scenario it, that yeah this life of ours is sometimes the timing of things is so is too breathtaking to even contemplate it's it's insane and as i mentioned before i'm not a religious person but i do believe in fate and i believe that things happen for a reason and uh I think that it was probably my mother's final gift to me because it was something that I always wanted. I always wanted to know where I'm from and who I am, which leads me to the last part of the story, which I came back to the UK after two months of being in New Zealand and, you know, putting my mum to rest and finishing up all my affairs. And at the time, we had just bought a house and my wife had to move us in. She had had some major 
surgery as well. So she wasn't in the best place. And, you know, we, when I came back, we, I had this new house. I had this new family. My, my wife was, you know, here. And it was just, it was an epiphany for me to say, I need, I want to make some changes in my life and I want to start doing things differently and I want to start doing things in my way and be in control. And uh, after many conversations with um, the guys at Caravan, I said, look, I think it's my time. It's my time to move on. Um, I'm not really sure what I want to do, but um, I do know that I'm, I'm going to go off and do something else. And I don't know what that is. I have many passions and many things that I love to do with videography, photography, music. I'm, I'm pretty good at them all. So whatever I do, I'm sure that I'm going to succeed in because I'm pretty confident now that I, I can do. So at the time, I was doing some stuff for Big Green Egg. Again, a lot of stuff has happened in the background with the barbecue world. And yeah. I sort of did loads of stuff with Weber. I was an ambassador for them for a couple of years and then... Big Green Egg uh, sort of got in contact and I've been doing some work with them. Uh, and I did some masterclasses of showing some chefs how to how to cook on, over live fire and how to do desserts and how to do these really cool things. And then uh, one of the people that I was showing how to do it was the guys from Goodman's. And they said, you know, would you ever be interested in doing menu development for us? You know, we're really struggling with it at the time. The head chef obviously has just come out of COVID and, you know, he's trying to hold together these restaurants and just doesn't have time to be creative. So I was like, let me take that headache away for you and I'll do it. And then at the same time, Caravan saw what I was doing for them. And they said, well, you are Caravan. You are our food. That's what you do. So why don't you um, do it for us as well? And then, you know, a lot of people came out of the of of the stratosphere wanting wanting my time. But then I thought, well, what I want to do is be the best for the two people who I'm working for at the moment. So decided that I didn't want to do anything more for anybody else and just work with these two brands, the two brands that I'm passionate about and that I love and that I believe in. And that's what I do now for four days a week. While, as I said, on the fifth day is, uh, is Friday. So it's my self-care day. Yeah. Do some stuff, learn more stuff about myself and my family and, you know, be present for my wife and, you know, do really cool stuff with the house, and yeah, that's what's what's led me here. That's that's my that's time. That's the story. Well, I mean, for want of a better phrase, holy shit! Um, <laughs> yeah, that was um, it, yeah. God Almighty, so many things in there, Matt. I mean, your your journey is off the charts. I think it's a it's a proper, and this is really cliched, but a proper rags to riches kind of story. Yep. And it's not even it just a, about the rags of uh, monetary hardship. It's you know, the rags of mental hardship, of any and every kind of hardship that, that you could ever possibly come across. Yep. And actually, you know, the, there's some, some great lessons across that, which we'll do another discussion at some other time on, because uh, yep. that's, a, that's a new section of the, the show, which we'll be launching at some point this year. Great. But, you know, one of the big takeaways for me is, you know, and I can see this in my own journey as well, very differently. But when you're when you're young, you you chase the money, and when you're older, you chase the happiness, and that's yeah. effectively you you you've definitely demonstrated that you're now chasing the things that make you happy. Yeah, and man, that's the greatest lesson I think that anybody could ever learn at whatever stage you learn it 
whether you're lucky enough to learn it young or whether it takes you 40 or 50 years of your life to learn when you learn it it makes such a difference to to the the joy that you take from every day i've i've had this conversation with my son so many times and spoken to him about it and and he's like no but it's it's money will make me happy and i was like it it will make it will give you a short-lived happiness you know but like being happy in yourself and not having to chase what you think you should be is is the greatest gift and you know i'm lucky enough to have found happiness and and right now life is great but also i don't want to take that for granted because things can change really quickly and they have done in my life and just be appreciative of the now and the moments because when they don't go as well at least you've got something to hold on to yeah which is i think really important for everybody and the lesson yeah and without being uh like this wanting to sound negative you know you you almost have to expect that at some point something will come and rock your your world and that that can take on many forms right Uh, as we all learned in 2020 for sure but then you know the the loss of a loved one the you know change in circumstances health there's so many things but as you say the joy of being here and now is kind of really all it is god this is turning into a philosophical podcast isn't it (laughs) (laughs) sorry i tend i tend to do that and as i said this could easily be a four-hour podcast. So yeah, well, we've done quite well. We've done quite well, for sure. I think you're, you're, without question, you're the, the longest uh, chat that we've had. But I think there's been so much merit in every part of your journey to, to this point. Uh, and very interested to see what happens next in, in your life. Before we go, a question I ask everybody, and I, this is kind of bringing it back to core message, but what would be your kind of top three reasons why somebody should join hospitality hmm it's a real difficult one because i have probably spent my career trying to talk people out of it right <laughs> and saying and and saying you That's not the message i was hoping money, for Matt. <laughs> <laughs> because of money because of stress because of life but i'm gonna say the three positives for me it gave me a sense of belonging it gave me a sense of being part of something bigger, it gave me a sense of camaraderie. What and, and in no way I know this is like being in a platoon of uh, an army or being in a, a an army environment, but it kind of feels like the same disciplines. And most of all, which I absolutely love, and probably why I'm slightly overweight, is that you get to eat the best food every single day. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, I like that one. I, I'm a bit of a foodie as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I, 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 in fact, I don't even think anybody's ever said that before. So, um... yeah. <laughs> yeah. No matter what, like, you have to taste it. You know, you, you've got truffles, you've got caviar, you've got at any style restaurant, you get to taste the best food every day. And that normal people or people outside of the industry, not normal people, sorry, people outside the industry don't get to taste that. Yeah. You know, you do. I get to taste the best food. Yeah. And it's great. People in this industry are not normal, Matt. They're superstars. That's So you were right (laughs) to say that. You were right to say that. Um, But uh, no, that's great. Look, I feel like I could talk to you all day, to be honest, but uh, we probably should wrap this up. Um, But It's um, a beautiful day outside, Phil. I hope you get the barbecue going. Um, I'm definitely here. Yeah, today (laughs) is the day we we whip out the old outdoor furniture. So uh, because the spring has arrived. 
Yes, Finally. it's a beautiful day outside. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been an absolute joy to to learn your story and what a story it is uh, as well. I appreciate you being so massively open about your journey and uh, and kind of all of the the lessons. I, I'm I'm sure that somebody out there will take real inspiration from the the things that you've worked through. Thank you so much for for listening, Phil, and thank you so much for giving me the platform to be able to say if it. As I've always said, if it like one person listens or one person's helps, you like by all means reach out. Matt Black on Instagram. Uh, yeah, please, please do. I'm happy to chat. Yeah, I'll put your uh, your Instagram tag on um, uh, in the show notes as well for people to reach Thank out you. if they want. Thank you so much. Cool. Take care. Take care. Cheers. And breathe. What an incredible journey Matt has had to this point, with so much to take away. I'll be forever grateful that he was so open with his story. We'll be back as usual next Wednesday at 8pm with another cracking journey from hospitality. But until then, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.